as we continue on in the book of Acts, looking at uh, chapter 11, verses 27, right on through chapter 12, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 tells us that God would give his church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And as we see in the book of Acts, as we see the gospel spreading, we see these very things as it was described. We see these things taking place. In Acts 11 and verse 27, And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did also, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So prophets from Jerusalem have come to Antioch. What was a prophet? Well, perhaps in the New Testament, the prophets were a little bit different from the Old Testament. A New Testament prophet was what we would call an inspired teacher or preacher. There were no New Testaments to be handed out to people at that time. It was still in its formulation process. So these inspired teachers would bring a word from God, from the Lord, to, and led by the Spirit, would bring it to the people and bring it to the people in what we could say almost in an errant kind of way. They would sometimes foretell future events. But that was not their main function. Instead, their major purpose was to bring the word of God. Preachers were they for the most part. But generally, they were not involved as an elder or pastor. And to some degree, as we see here with Agabus, they were itinerant. That is, they moved from place to place. We can see in Ephesians 4 and verse 11 and 1 Corinthians 12 and verses 28 to 29 that they are classed right next to the apostles. So they were, as the apostles would move out, and these would be men who would spread out even further and double and increase the work uh, that uh, the apostles were doing and accomplishing. We're introduced to one of the prophets. His name is Agabus. Tradition tells us that he was among the 70 that Jesus sent out in his earthly ministry. And you can read about that uh, sending out of the 70 in the 10th chapter of Luke's gospel. But here in Acts 11 and verse 28, he prophesies of a, a great famine that is coming. We'll hear from him again in Acts chapter 21 in verses 10 through 12, where he prophesies to Paul that uh, chains and afflictions are awaiting him as he pursued his current course. Which makes me think that Probably Agabus was not 
one that got a lot of invitations to parties and gatherings. Here he comes again. Oh, bad news, Agabus. So the first thing that we see from this, as we load through this <coughs> section here, is first, there's, they're forewarned of a famine. <coughs> it tells us here in verse 28 that he signified or showed <coughs> by the Spirit, not by horoscope, not by secret arts or magic, but by the Spirit, not reading animal entrails, but by the Spirit of God that there was going to be a famine. And it wasn't going to be a local one. It was going to be a famine that was spread out through all the Roman Empire, which was very large, most of the known world. Luke, in his usual fashion, gives us <clears throat> who the emperor was at this time, and the historians of the empire, of the Roman Empire, write that there was this famine. Not that we need secular people to confirm the truth of Scripture. Well, what should be the response? Agabus stood up and showed them by the Spirit that there's going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. We have this information. <clears throat> they treat it truly as it has come from God. They don't question the word a, a bit. Agabus has delivered a proper prophecy, <clears throat> so it demanded some kind of action. And in verse 29, then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. <clears throat> so the action that we see is the second thing that we note, and that is having been forewarned of the famine, they give an unselfish response without any thought to themselves. In verse 29, when the disciples, then disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. No thought of themselves. <clears throat> it's quite amazing. They did not say, well, in light of this information, we need to build storehouses. <clears throat> we need to build our own shelters. But the thought of their hearts and their minds went out right away to those brethren in Judea. This is an uncommon response. Think back just a couple of years <clears throat> in the midst of this pandemic. <clears throat> People were hoarding items. People who would <clears throat> call themselves Christians on any other day when they got to the grocery store and saw two cases of toilet paper, said, ha, they're mine. They hoarded toilet paper to the point that there was either none to be found or what was left had to be rationed. And there were other things that were hoarded during that time as well. 
or we can go back to Y2K now. <laughs> and to think that was 23 years ago, so some weren't even alive at that point. But Oh, the preppers, the doomsday preppers. Oh, when that clock turns midnight on January 1st or December 31st, 1999, and we turn into the year 2000, it's going to be chaos. Oh, it's going to be. You, banks won't be able to operate, and, and your computer will die, and, and uh, if you're coming out of a parking lot and, and you've got the card, well, you can't, you, you're going to be stuck in the parking lot because the alarm won't go up and down because it, it thinks it's 1930. All these crazy things and all the crazy things that people are doing because if you want to sell something, make people afraid. Really inject some fear into them. Well, then we need to build bunkers and stores of food. And we will be set while others are not. Think of the adverts you see all the time. You want to sell something? This is a limited edition. Get yours now because supplies are limited. Oh, you better run out and get it. Yeah. The first place that those in Antioch thought of, the first thing that they came to mind were the believers in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. These churches had suffered greatly, persecuted, ravaged by wars, shunned by those around them. Plus, they had given all their reserves in the beginning, in the early formation of the church there. And second, but the second was the great gratitude. They, they felt obliged, obliged to help those from where the gospel had come to them. How thankful they were for the gospel and for those from Jerusalem and Judea who had brought it to them. You see, the conditions of Judea and Jerusalem and the, that area around Jerusalem were so bad that so many of the believers had to disperse, as we saw previously in, in the earlier chapters. And some of them dispersed all the way to Antioch. So verse 29, again, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They determined to do that. That means it was their choice. It was voluntary. There was no new law saying that they had to do these things. And as Paul brings out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and and verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, when the heart is right, people don't have to be cajoled into doing things. 
When the heart is right, you don't have to stand there and day after day beg that people will support. They, of their own volition, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Each according to his ability. Now, what is according to our ability? Well, each one has to search their own heart to know that. We can't say that, well, if you earn this much, then you must give this much. We don't really go by percentages. People say, well, I give 10%. That's good in the Old Testament. But remember, there was 10% of this and 10% of that and 10% of that, which told about 30%. The New Testament says, as God has prospered you. And that's up to the heart of the person. Well, I'm not going to come up here. No one should come up here with formulas saying, all right, here's what you got this week. We're not the federal government. We're not saying, here's the chart here. If you got this much, you give us this much. There are churches that happen. And by the way, different from the federal government is every dollar, every penny that comes in here is accounted for. Every single penny is accounted for. When you pay your taxes, do you think that's happening? When was the last time you got an itemized list of expenditure from the federal government? And in fact, that's, that's something else that came out of COVID as well. Billions upon billions of dollars were dispersed to the states and no accountability. But that's the mindset of the secular mind. If there's a problem, just throw money at it. But these, these, each according to his ability, each as it seemed good to each, determined to give relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now then, you see in that, that last statement, the direction, the destination of their giving to the brethren in the name of God to the people of God. A few years ago, it was near Halloween and, and there was a, someone I know from one of the local churches which leans to that, that side. This is my right hand. It leans that way. They were giving to their children these plastic pumpkins. And it had UNICEF on there. United Nations Children's Fund. And they wanted the children of the church to go when they go around to hold that bucket up so people would put money in the bucket. And I simply questioned was, is God going to be glorified in this? Or is the United Nations going to be glorified? And of course, the answer had to be the United Nations because it didn't say anything about God. It didn't say anything about his church or anything like that. I think it's very unwise to do those sort of things. You see, 
send relief to whom? To the brethren dwelling in Judea. That's our, our first responsibility in Romans 12 and in verse 13. The apostle says, distributing to the needs of the saints. Distributing to the needs of the saints. And in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That comes first. It doesn't mean that we ignore all others. But our first priority must be the people of God. That's only right. You always take care of your people at home before you would give outside. In Hebrews 6 and verse 10, uh, we read, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now they've determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Now how will it be delivered? In order to deliver it, there had to be wisdom. There had to be discernment. And so in verse 30, chapter 11, this they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. They used wisdom in the choice of those who would deliver it. Paul and Barnabas would know exactly where to go and exactly who to give it to when they got to Jerusalem. That's really good stewardship. And I think you know what it's worth saying just because you watch some kind of plea on television and there's a real good production value to the, the plea doesn't necessarily mean that that organization is legitimate. We could go on about that, but there are other things more important to, to go to. But always, always check out. It's part of good stewardship to check out who, where your money's going, who it's going to, and where it's going to end up. So what we see here as we close off chapter 11 is the church caring for the church. You see, that's the thing that we, we speak about in both our, the times that we, we give uh, our, our creeds. We believe in one holy Catholic, that is universal, universal, one universal church. Catholic and apostolic, that is founded on the teachings of the apostles. We believe in one church because there's only one heaven. There's only one Savior. There's only one Lord, one baptism, one faith. It, on and on is, is only one church. And of course, one true church. 
Now we go to a study in contrast as we begin chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of, from the church. And then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. And that was during the days of unleavened bread. And so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So here's the last part in a study in contrasts. We go from great benevolence to great malevolence. Now malevolence may not be a word that you hear much in for some of the younger ones. Malevolence means active hatred. Active hatred. And we see how things were in Jerusalem. We're seeing that picture come alive to us in chapter 12. James, the brother of John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus, we meet them in in Matthew chapter 20. You can turn there if you'd like to. Matthew chapter 20. I feel like I need to start reading it at uh, verse 17 because there's such a contrast of things that happen here. Matthew 20 verse 17. Now Jesus... Going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink? And he, he's looking at the, not the mother anymore, he's looking at the two sons. You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. And so he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's for those who have been prepared by my father. So Jesus tells James and John that they would be baptized with the same baptism that he was baptized with. And that's not saying what we do by uh, making a profession of faith, declaring what the Lord has done for us. That's not what he's talking about here, to be immersed into the type of death that I am going to experience. He tells them they were going to be martyred. And so it was. 
James would be the first of the disciples to be killed, to be murdered. Fulfilling what Jesus had told him would happen. But the thing is, Herod sought to kill more. Cheered on by the Jews, their joy and their pleasure over the death of James. He sought to do more, but God restrained him. Oh yeah, Peter's put in jail. But that'll be, we'll see that he gets miraculously released. That'll be for next time. But it's interesting to see this. Herod didn't hate the church. He had no raging animosity against Christianity. What he was doing was currying favor with the majority. A, quote, religious majority. And a religious majority can be just as frightening as a secular majority. The early days in our colonies can prove much of that. Some of the things that happened in the 1660s in England can prove to that. Religious people were in charge and killing other religious people. Persecution can come from many sides and come for many reasons. Well, I want to finish up with making a few observations here. First, it's Christ here. Well, yeah, he was. First, through the prophets, Christ was still in the midst. He was still speaking to his people. Secondly, when the decision to aid the church was made, Jesus was there inspiring them. Thirdly, when James was killed, Jesus was with him, comforting him, and then receiving him. And then when Herod fourthly sought to kill more, Jesus was there restraining him. Why did James get killed? If Jesus was there, why did James get killed? Well, first, you, we understand that James got an early entrance into glory. And that James' unflinching faith would inspire many others. And we have to understand, too, that Jesus never said, in this world, you're going to have a great time. Full of peace and happiness and no trouble. Never said that. And it's interesting later, as we come, since we're coming close to the Reformation Day, uh, Martin Luther said, there's two types of theology out there. There's theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Most people fall into the category of wanting the theology of glory. No problems, just everything moving towards greatness and wonder and glory and delight. But he said the reality is, and when we think about it, when you think about it, what is the one most universal symbols 
of Christianity? The cross. The cross. Somehow in the mind of many that we deserve better treatment than our Lord deserved. But we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom. And just as Stephen, when he was being stoned, looked up, said, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. He was comforted in the midst of that time. He was not forgotten, not laid aside, but he was welcomed. Jesus was standing. What's that a sign of? It's just like the prodigal, the father of the prodigal son. Come here, come here. Your time has come. We're never out of the protection of Christ, even in the midst of the difficulties and trials that he promised would happen to his people. Let's stand together for prayer. Uh -uh.